When we are in the midst of a series this fall on the life of David and looking at his life, and we're going to go all the way through November with it and probably the first week of December. Um, so we've covered, we're about halfway through, and so we have, uh, we're, gonna, we're not going to be able to go through every chapter of Second Samuel, so we're going to skip the next few weeks on some of the highlights of David's, uh, when he is king. But this morning, we're going to look at David in grief, Second Samuel chapter 1. In Second Samuel chapter 31, Saul has been killed, he died in battle, his sons have been killed, Jonathan's dead. All of them the dead, there's the account. And then 2 Samuel begins. And originally, there was no 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. They're all just one long book that was written that's important to keep in mind. But let me read 2 Samuel chapter 1. We'll read the first, read the whole chapter. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know? that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I said, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him. Because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm. And I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son. And for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. Because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner. An Amalekite. And David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be upon your head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, 
who clothed you in luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perish. David in grief. So we're going to look at this morning. Let's pray. Holy Father, Lord, thanks for your word. Lord, just thanks for the chance to start out the week again together, to gather together, to be encouraged with each other and hearing from you. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just remove every distraction from us right now. Just open up our hearts and our minds, encourage us and strengthen us. Lord, thanks for the answer to prayer with Josephina. Thanks for the answer to prayer for the staff account. Just thanks for your work in it in our church and in people's lives. Lord, I pray that you would be with those who are hurting this morning, those who are struggling emotionally or physically or spiritually. God, I pray that you'd see their need, that they would call out to you for help, and that they would receive your grace. Lord, I pray for our country and for our leaders, that you would give them wisdom as they lead us, God, help us to pray and look to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. On Friday is, this coming Friday is Halloween, which is, comes from All Hallows Eve. Right now it's just a big fest for candy for the kids. But ultimately, if you do a Wikipedia search of Halloween, this is what Wikipedia says about All Hallows Eve. The traditional focus, this is a quote from Wikipedia, the traditional focus of All Hallows Eve revolves around the theme of using humor and ridicule to confront the power of death. Because there is a real power in death. There's a very powerful power in death and in mourning and in weeping. And so we don't handle that well often in our culture. We're not sure always how to grieve, how to lament, how to weep over things. Death has a power. C.S. Lewis, who was one of the uh, great authors of our day, um, he wrote a book called A Grief Considered, 65 pages of a man trying to deal with grief after the loss of his wife. I read it this week in one sitting. It's, it's, It's powerful. But he says in that, he starts out his book on a grief considered, and this is how it starts out. He goes, no one ever told me grief felt so like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. I remember the first time I experienced what I would say is the grief of death. We had a neighbor. She wasn't my aunt, but we used to call her Aunt Janet. And she lived across from us. We would you know, throw things on our roof, and every once she'd come out and snap her fingers at us, you know, but she was always bringing us cookies and stuff. Aunt Janet was always around, and to this day, I remember I was sick from school, and, I, and I, we, we had a second-story porch, and I heard my mom go outside to talk to the mailman, and I heard something. It was un, that wasn't unusual. I just heard them talking, but I felt something was different. So I remember vividly opening up the door and looking down into the yard and seeing my first signs of grief. My mom crying, 
Something was wrong with Aunt Janet. And I remember from that time, from that things changed. When, when mourning happens, when, when death happens, things change. I've done now enough funerals that nobody asks me anymore, how many funerals have you done? Nobody asks me that anymore because I've done enough of them that you see grief. And for our church, particularly us, in the last two years, I would say we have been in the church, we've been in a time of grief. You may not feel it, you may not even notice it, but we've had a number of people very close to our church pass away. And many of us and many of you are going through and have experienced and dealing with grief and the weight of it. Maybe you remember the first time you experienced death or grief or mourning. And we all feel it. I've felt it far more than I want to. But the reality is, I'll feel it even far more to come. That's the way life goes. And grief, though, is not always about death. It's a lot of times about death, but it's not always about death. I would say death is the top shelf vision version of grief. You know, you're trying to reach for the top shelf. If you don't do it right, everything comes tumbling down and it can be very painful. But there's also lower shelf types of grief. Things that we, 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 we deal with on a regular basis. You know, the loss of a job can be a grief. The transitions of life can be griefs. Loss of friendships can all be Griefs, And if we don't learn how to grieve them, how to lament these things in life, we don't learn how to mourn those things, we're going to have difficulty. Uh, we no longer have elementary students in our house. Uh, I used to have to go to the elementary school, drop somebody off, and then I have to go to the middle school and the high school and drop somebody off. This year, I just go right over to the middle school. And I kind of had a moment of grief over that, where I had to drive past the elementary the first day, kind of pause a little bit and think, Man, I'm not dropping off any elementary kids. Now I drive past off the elementary, I'm like, yes, I'm not dropping off any elementary kids. But you have, we mourn all these things in life. There's all these things in life, top shelf things and bottom shelf things that cause us grief and cause us to mourn. And some people say, well, I don't like to talk about loss. I don't like to talk about death. I don't want to talk about loss when there's so much life to live. Well, I want to suggest today, and I think David shows us, that if you don't come to grips with loss, you won't be able to live life. And David, in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, in the middle of his life, after 10 years of striving, wandering in the wilderness, being in the cave, suffering from Saul, he's now experiencing the death of his archenemy and the death of his closest friend, all at the same time. All at once. And how does he deal with that? And this morning we're going to look at counterfeit grief, the compulsion of grief, and considering grief. How does a man, after God's own heart, which is David, how does he deal with grief? How do you deal with grief? The death of someone, or just the regular griefs of life that we have to deal with on a regular basis. First, we're going to look at the counterfeit grief. We had just read last week, if you, or if you read this week, in 1 Samuel 31, David had been at Ziklag. He had tried to get to the Philistines. He, he was sent back. To, instead of fighting for the Philistines, he was sent back. They wouldn't let him fight, and the Philistines went on to fight with Israel. And David went back, and he found his 
hometown, all his family in Ziklag gone, destroyed his wife and killed children, all kidnapped. He went and fought for them, got them back. And then it starts in verse in 1 Samuel 30, 31, talks about how Saul died. It talks about the battle. The Philistines did go on to fight Israel. They did go out after them. And through the battle, Saul, it says in 1 Samuel 31, is killed. By, he's, he sees he's wounded. Jonathan dies. His other sons die. Saul sees this, knows that he's going to die, and he falls on his own sword, it says, and he kills himself. And then in 2 Samuel 31, this account, David is just getting back. It says two days from Ziklag. He's just coming back to his hometown in Ziklag. The smoke of his town being burnt is still smoldering. He's just back from this news, just back from rescuing his people, just back to trying to think, how am I going to rebuild this town for all my people? And all of a sudden, this guy comes running up to him who looked like he was understanding grief. He sees this guy, he's got his clothes are all ripped, he's got ashes on his head, he's run 80 miles to get to David, to try to come to him and tell him that Saul is dead. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and this first chapter, is not about a manual on how to deal with grief. It, we're going to talk about that, but that's not the ultimate picture the ultimate point of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is to show how God was going to keep his promise to the nation of Israel and make them a nation of great people that he made to Abraham. How he was going to make a king come from them. How he's going to have a Messiah come from them. That's the overall picture of David. That's the overall picture of these books. That's why we read them, to see how God kept his promise all the way through. Someone said this, Christianity lay in Judaism as leaves and fruit do in the seed, although it certainly required the divine Son to bring them forth. And for us, we need to know, the reason these are in the, old, uh, the Bible for us is to see how did God keep his promise all the way through and make his covenant to his people come true. And that's what he's ultimately doing. But in the process of all this, David is really living a real life. And he's living a real man's life. He's living the life that we live. And we can see how a man after God's heart dealt with these things. So here comes this Amalekite, bringing the crown and the armbands of Saul to David. This guy thinks, this guy thinks this is the greatest thing in the world. He's the luckiest man on earth. If I bring this to David, the guy's going to reward me because Saul is David's arch enemy. And I know that if, he, if I show him that Saul's dead, David's going to be thrilled by this. He may, he may give me a cabinet position. This could be very good for me. And that's what happens. So David comes. He comes to this guy. And he tells David what happens. And what we see from the first half of this is there are two views of life. Two kinds of views of life. There's the secular view and there's the spiritual view. The Amalekites' view of life is absolutely secular. Because in his mind, this is all life is. In his mind, you live and you die. That's it. You live and you die, and then you try to take advantage of whatever you can in that process. So this is Amalekite. He thought he hit the jackpot in a life like that. He's standing. He's just like a scavenger on the mountains. He was watching the war. All these dead guys everywhere, just waiting for everybody to leave. He ran in there and scavenged them before the Philistines came back. 
and did, and he thought he hit the jackpot. In his, life, in his view of life, the secular view of life, you live and you die, and it's just, he should be rewarded. You take advantage of whatever situation you, can't, you, you can. That's not the David's view of life. That's not the spiritual view of life. That's not the Christian view of life. David recognized fundamentally that there is another world that we are called to live in. There is an eternity. There is God's plan and God's purposes, which is why all the way through, when David had a chance to kill Saul, he would not touch the Lord's anointed. Because he knew that there was a greater reason to live, that there's a greater purpose, that there is an eternity, that there is a God to be dealt with, and there is a God who has his plans and his purposes in place. That's the spiritual Christian view of life. Not live and die and take advantage of whatever you can. And the Amalekite had bought into this counterfeit reality of life, and maybe you are too. This Amalekite was a sojourner, it says. So he had moved into where the Israelites were. He knew how the nation of Israel worked. He knew how the people of God acted. He knew what the people of God valued. He knew what the people of God lived for. He had heard about Yahweh and his plans and promises and purposes. Why else would he have snatched them from Saul and ran 80 miles to David? Because he knew David was going to be the next king. He had heard all the stories. He knew all the truth. He had all the head knowledge in the world. But he still had a secular view of life. And he thought that his way was the right way. You live, you die, you take advantage of whatever you can, and you should be rewarded for it. But David had a spiritual view of life. The Amalekites' grief was absolutely counterfeit. It was was a narcissistic nod to true faith. He he knew the God of the Bible. He knew Yahweh. It was just he thought he could get something from God. And this is the major picture About life, if we miss this, the Amalekite got exposed. David found out that he killed him. And the guy just thought it was no big deal, and and he was exposed, and he was killed for it. He was held accountable for his actions. He, He had counterfeit grief. He had a counterfeit faith. He was living completely for himself. It was all about him and his selfishness, and he got exposed. And that's gonna happen To all of us. Because there is a God that is real. There is a God that is eternal. And there are God's purposes and plans that will be accomplished. If your faith is in your life is just secular thinking, or just you live, die, and figure it out on your own and hope things work out, that's not the way it's going to work out for you. Psalms 51.6 says, Behold, you delight in truth, talking about God, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Psalms 90, verse 8 says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, and the light of your presence. This was where the Amalekite was. He got exposed for his counterfeit faith. How are you this morning? Is your faith genuine? Have you committed your life to Jesus Christ? If that's true, and that's what you say, How is it that you're not choosing to follow Jesus with your life? Or how is it you can consistently live in sin 
without running to repentance. What kind of faith do you have? The Amalekite had a secular view of life, and he thought that he was going to earn God's favor and David's favor by doing this. And God exposed him to it. God will expose our sin. He got held accountable to it. He said, but guys, an Amalekite, how come he got held accountable to this? The Bible says in Romans 1 that we will all be held accountable for the truth that God has placed inside of us. And the good news is there is hope for us. There is hope for us if we will repent and if we will turn and follow the ways that God has called for us. The Amalekite had absolutely counterfeit faith that cost him his life. He was living a counterfeit reality. The reality is that life is for eternity and that God exists and has full reign over everything. That's the counterfeit grief. But then there's this compulsion for grief, or maybe some of us are. Look what it says as the story, as the, 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 they wrote Second Samuel, the narrator tell, tells the story not like any of us ever would. Here's this Amalekite who comes running back, lying the whole time about how Saul died. And it says in verse 11 and 12, as soon as he heard that Saul was dead, He's listening to this Amalekite. He knows something's fishy. Something's not quite right with the story. But as soon as he heard that Saul was really dead and Jonathan was really dead, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. That's not how we would write that story. We would have written the story about, here's what happened, here's how it took place, then the Amalekite got killed, and then they mourned over the loss of John. That's not, what the, that's not what the narrator of 1 Samuel does at all. He says, this is what happened, here's what took place, and as soon as David and his men heard what happened, they instantly ripped their clothes and they mourned. There's an absolute compulsion of grief, isn't there? There's a, you walk home today. And you get some news on the phone that something tragic has happened or you lost your job or something's wrong with your kids or someone dies. You don't put that on hold, do you? You don't pause and say, let me finish the football game and I'll get to that grief. It's not how grief works in our lives. There's an absolute compulsion that we instantly have to, we grieve. That's what David did. He instantly began to grieve and just ripped his clothes and they, they all, the men, after all that they were going through. Their houses aren't built yet. Their families are just getting back together. And they stop for a whole day and grieve. Which is very contrary to the way we as in the Western culture deal with grief. We want to get through it as fast as possible. We barely want to stay for a funeral. Is the visitation fast? Let me get in and out. Uh, we don't want to wait in line for anybody's death. We, want, we don't want to deal with it. We want to get through and get it over with it and get done and move on with our lives. That's not how the Bible describes grief at all and dealing with grief. Grief takes priority in David's life and in the whole men's life. They, they paused for the whole day. It's very hard for us to do. They paused even with this liar standing next to them. Wondering, what's this guy going to do? Listen, grief can't be rushed. You will go through grief one day. You're going to get bad news. You're going to have a tragedy. 
And the human American side of you is one that's going to say, okay, let's just get through it. Let's get it over with. Let's go and get it done. But we're, we're all lying to ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves. Grief takes priority in our lives. Grief can't be rushed. It can't be rushed on our side individually, and it can't be rushed on somebody else who's going through it. Grief is passed through. It's not skipped over. You will grieve some way. Some of you are grieving now and have been grieving for a while. That's okay. Grief is passed through. It's not skipped over. And in the midst of it all, nobody gets grief right. Nobody does. We are all broken. Nothing, nobody ever gets through grief or mourning unscathed. I mean, we're, we're broken. If you ever lost somebody that you were close to, often in that scenario, if you look back and think about what it is you remember sometimes, you remember the dumbest things that people say to you. You don't always remember the good things, the people that said the right things to you, the comforting things to you. But the times that I have grieved, what I can go back to instantly is the dumb thing somebody said to me at Walmart. And you have to deal with that. Nobody gets through grief unscathed. There's, there's a compulsion to grief, which means we need to learn how to deal and talk about it, and I don't do it well. Nobody does. Even C.S. Lewis, the great author who wrote the book on grief, his, his son at the time, his stepson, when I read the foreword of the book, he said, you know, in the, in the book, C.S. Lewis said, like, I, when, I, my, when my wife died, I, I couldn't even talk to my kids about it. Because every time I talked to my kids about it, the look on their face was sheer embarrassment. And the son who wrote the foreword in the edition that I had, he says, I've always wanted to correct something that C.S. Lewis says about me. I was a 14-year-old teenager when this happened. And I was British. And for a 14-year-old teenager in Britain, we were constantly told, don't cry. Whatever you do, don't cry. So when C.S. Lewis would look to me and say, want to say something about my mom, it wasn't that I didn't want to talk about my mom. But it was the shame that I might cry as a man. Because it took me 30 years to cry. Nobody gets through grief unscathed. There's a compulsion of grief. It comes to us in waves, and we've got to stop and give it priority. We, we can't be rushed through it. We can't let other people rush us through it. We've we got to be graceful people. When you go through a time of grief and a time of mourning, all the questions of life really do come up. Where is God? There is no use going on. If God were very good, this wouldn't happen to me. Listen, when we see people in our church going through grief, which we have been as a church individually and corporately for a number of years now. When we see this, we need to be and become better at being people of grace on both sides. If you're grieving, don't expect everybody to say the right thing because they're not going to do it. And if you are not grieving, don't feel like you don't know what to say or to do. Because you're not going to get it right, but do something. And people will say all kinds of things when they're grieving. There's all kinds of things that come out of people's mouths. I mean, I, we've done enough funerals now, but enough with enough families that when I'm sitting with them, some of the most godly people I know say the most heretical things in times of grief. 
The things that comes out of people's minds, just like, whoa. You don't really believe that? Please tell me you don't believe that. That's what you feel like saying when you're with someone who is going through grief, when they say things. But Job helped me greatly when he says this in Job 6.26. Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? When you're going through grief or when somebody else is going through grief and they're, they're, not, shaky, they're not on solid ground yet, don't take everything somebody says in the midst of grief as that's what they really believe. Because they have just been compulsed by grief, thrown into a very deep pool. And they're just trying to survive. And what's coming out of their mouth may not sound like truth that they taught you or truth that you heard them say before, or truth that you think they believe. But it's just words in the wind. And six months later, or a year later, go back and talk to them, and I bet they won't say those things. Don't hold it against people. Be people of grace in the times of grief on both sides. Someone said this, let us learn to discern whether the words spoken against us or against God or against the truth are merely for the wind, spoken not from the soul, but from the sore. Be very careful. When someone's going through grief, and they are just compulsed by it, they're overwhelmed by it, and they're saying things that you think, what? That's got to be corrected. Don't do it. Give them grace to be in grief. It, it stops everything. That's what David did. He stopped completely for a whole day. And then he wept. But how do you consider grief? After he did that, he wrote this lament. A beautiful lament of Saul and Jonathan, as we consider grief, and it's just, he says in David, verse 17, and David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jassar. Why did David say, write this down? Why should it should be taught? Why do we need it to be taught to us? Because we don't naturally know how to grieve. We don't naturally know how to mourn. We think we do, but we don't naturally know how to do it. David knew this. So David was writing the lament so that he knew that for the nation of God, the people of God, they would learn how to lament, how to mourn, how to go through death and suffering and pain. And he said, write it down. And so he said, grieving, I would say, is a learned experience. It's a learned experience. We don't naturally know how to do it. We have to be taught in some ways how to do it. And one of the good ways to be taught how to lament, how to mourn, is by lament. A lament is not a rant of your feelings. David sat down, and he didn't just pour out his gut feelings about this. What he did was he sat down and he thought. So he had his grief and his emotions and his reason together. He put the two of them together and he wrote them down on paper. That's what a lament is. It's reason and emotions coming out in his writing. And if you're in grief, I'd encourage you to do that. Journal it. Write it down in, with your emotions and your reason. How you feel and what you know to be true about God. Write it down. It's how David dealt with his lamenting. How he dealt with his grieving. Grieving, it's a learned experience. But grieving is also vital 
It's a vital aspect of Christian community. Verses 20 through 24 of David's lament, which we don't have time to go through the whole thing. It's beautiful. He's saying he does not want the enemy to know that his king is dead. He doesn't want to know. He wants people to to sing and to pray. He says all these wonderful things. It's vital to the community. It's, it's a vital aspect of Christian community that we learn and consider grief. Eugene Peterson said this about the community aspect, aspect of grief. Pain isn't the worst thing. Being hated isn't the worst thing. Being separated from the one you love isn't the worst thing. Death isn't the worst thing. The worst thing is failing to deal with reality and becoming disconnected from what is actual. The worst thing is trivializing the honorable, desecrating the sacred. What I do with my grief affects the way you handle your grief. Together, we form a community that deals with death and other loss in the context of God's sovereignty, which is expressed finally in resurrection. Grief is vital. We have to remember that when we're walking around here as a church, when we're talking to people, there is somebody in grief, somebody mourning. Every day we get together, every Sunday, somebody's in grief. And it's vital that we learn from each other and share that together and try to enhance that and understand where they're coming from. We're going to be lost as a Christian community. David wrote it out, and he said, this is how I want you to know this and how to learn this and to limit over this. And the last part, aspect is greater love means greater grief. David highlights, he forgives Saul through the process. Doesn't mention any of the bad things that Saul did through him in, in his lament, which is amazing. But then he highlights his love for his friendship with Jonathan. David and Jonathan had not hung out together for years. Dave, Saul, David, Saul said, Jonathan stayed loyal to his dad. They weren't able to see each other. Do not read any form of homosexuality in those verses. That's not what it's talking about at all. This is a deep, deep friendship that David has this great love. And greater love, there means greater grief. And sometimes we forget that. The greater love that you have for somebody or for something, when you lose that, the greater grief that there is going to be in that. And you need to be prepared for that as a church. We need to be prepared for that as individuals. Where there is greater love, there is greater grief. What do we do with all this grief? What do we do with all these emotions and feelings? How do we know that there's any hope that we're going to get through the process? Through life with this. It's the promise that we claim to continue in faith as being convinced that beneath it all is the love that can be never separated. David knew. David knew that God promised him that he would be king. David knew that God was a God who kept his promises, that he loved David unconditionally. David knew that. And that's what kept David going through his grief, is the promise of the love of God that he had. This past Tuesday, it was or Thursday, I was looking at the news, and all of a sudden this story popped up, and it just stunned me for some reason. The headline of the news, it must have said this, parents stand by daughter after she tried to kill them. A 15-year-old Michigan girl on October 17th with her 23-year-old boyfriend was standing outside texting her how to kill her family. 
Roxana Sierkowski was adopted from Poland. She had a terrible life before she came to Poland. Her, po- her parents went over to Poland. They, they rescued her. They brought her up into this middle-class Plymouth, Michigan home. She was, they did everything they could to help her. She's had all kinds of special needs. She was, they were loving her, pouring out their love for her. She got hooked up with some 23-year-old idiot who convinced her that she should kill her family. So she went in, took a knife, and stabbed her 12-year-old brother in the neck. Almost killed him. But what's amazing about the story, as her parents said, we're still going to stand by her. Her lawyer said, her parents said about her parents, they're not going to throw her under the bus. I don't know why that story gripped me. But that's what God did for us. We are Roxana Sarkorsky to God. We wanted to go our own way. God did everything to help us. He adopted us into his family. He cares for us deeply, gives us all that we need. And we still want to go after him with unbelief. And we still want to fight our own way. And we still don't want to believe that God loves us. And even when we attack him, even when we want to deny him, even when we want to walk away from the faith, God says, I'm not going to throw them under the bus. And the way you know that is because I sent my son for you. I took all your anger on the cross. I died for you. I loved you so much that I came from you. So I want to rescue you. God's not going to throw us under the bus with our grief. So when you're going through a difficult time and you're feeling like, I don't believe God, or you're trying to deal with the difficulties of life, it's not true that God doesn't care. God will help us grieve because he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We don't, not, we don't know how to grieve, or we don't grieve as those who have no hope, the Bible says. But we grieve in hope because of the one who was most grieved. Jesus took all our pain, all our sin, all our wrath, and he said, I'm going to take it for you because I love you, and I'll never leave you, and I'll never forsake you. So we can learn how to grieve with deep, abiding hope. Let's pray. This morning, as we bow our heads and close our eyes and just think about what we heard from God's word. Maybe you are grieving this morning. Maybe you just need to claim a hold of the promises of Romans chapter 8. Maybe you've grieved poorly, or maybe you need to confess that you need to go back and make some things right 
with someone, I just encourage you to confess that right now. Or maybe, you say, I, would have, I don't have anybody in my life who would not throw me under the bus. But I would like to have somebody. Jesus is that person. He says, if you will come to me, turn to me, confess and commit your life to me, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You can do that this morning as well. Healing rain is coming down, is coming nearer to this old town. The rich and poor, the weak and strong, it's bringing mercy, it won't be long. Time again.